Welcome to the When Bearing Witness podcast. This podcast is an invitation to explore trauma-informed storytelling, a safe and healthy process of gathering and telling painful stories. It's hosted by me, Maria Bryan, a career storyteller. I have long believed that storytellers play a crucial role in making the world a better place. For a brief moment, I was introduced to the concept of trauma-informed storytelling, and it changed my life. Join my conversations with trauma-informed experts and social good storytellers as we help shape the intersection of trauma-informed care and the storytelling process. Stories are sacred, and we can create safe spaces to tell and share them. Hello and welcome. Today we are speaking with Christy Kern. Christy is a workshop facilitator who helps folks find clarity, determine what they are for, anchor their work and value, and ultimately become better communicators. She is an ethical storytelling advocate and has developed an ethical storytelling database with an evolving collection of resources to support better ethical storytelling practices. That link will be in the show notes. Christy has been a really big part of my journey too. In fact, we formed a small study group to complete a trauma and resilience certificate program. Christy, I am so, so thrilled to have you on. When bearing witness, I have been following your journey and your work in ethical storytelling and your your research and I love how we've been able to get to know each other um, and have become friends um, the past year or so through learning about trauma-informed storytelling. So I'll get to that, but would love for you to kind of start a little bit from the beginning. What I know that you've you've lived a few different lives. So what has brought you to more values-driven communications and marketing? Like probably a lot of people in their professions, it's been a very winding road. I actually started out in college as a communications major and switched because I had no idea what a communications major actually did for work after college, but ironically ended up back in communications um, eventually. And like anybody, you just learn from who's there to teach you in your job. And for me, it was editors, it was you know CEOs of nonprofits, It was leaders in a space who just said, here's what's always been done, go do it. And so I grew up kind of in the, if it bleeds, it leads uh, mentality. I think all of us remember the flyers that we used to get with, you know, big eyed, very sad looking children asking for donations and money. And by all accounts, those things did well. And those were kind of held as best practices. And so That's what I learned to do as well, not knowing. And so eventually I ended up working for some nonprofits and social enterprises and kind of fell into what I assumed and was told were best practices. I think that it was somewhere maybe early 2010 or so, Friends International put out a campaign. And I don't know if this was a global campaign or at the time I was living in Cambodia, so it might have just been happening in the Mekong Delta area, but um, about children not being 
kind of museum ornaments in a sense. And so they ran this incredible campaign where they they had kind of posed children inside of like plastic boxes with this sense of like, we're just here to, to view them, to visit them. And they were speaking a little bit about the orphanage tourism industry, if you will, but also just kind of the bigger implications of what it's like to be a foreigner who comes over and takes photos on part of your vacation or as part of a volunteerism experience, which were really big at the time in Cambodia. And I think that was one of my first kind of eye-opening moments of what it was like. In, in theory, that wasn't what we we were doing. We were doing better work than that, if you will. But the real question was, were we? Were we actually doing something that had more integrity and something that was more dignifying um, than just using photos to get, you know, as a means to an end? And I think that was probably the first time that I recognized that there was something a lot deeper to how we communicated and what we communicated and such. And I have slowly started to learn how easy it is to use stories, particularly in, in the media that comes with that and the, the marketing we surround that with, kind of as a commodity and not as a tool for building relationships and a tool for building dignity and value um, for all involved, right? For the person we are communicating about, but also for their community, for staff members, for uh, the person collecting that photo, for the person experiencing and receiving that marketing. I, I think we all kind of have a role in that. And so it's been a super slow journey for me. I've made a ton of mistakes along the way, but I am just really thrilled to to continue to learn to do better and, and hopefully you know, get encouraged and, and fortified along the way. <laughs> I think back often, not only on my own journey, because I've had, I've made a lot of mistakes too, but those big campaigns where children especially are not really given much context or agency. And these fundraising campaigns were wildly successful. And I think that's really something that we need to to acknowledge and to understand that we need to make choices and that just because some tactics work um, and ha has this long ripple effect that can be so damaging for people and communities. Um, but I think the good news is that we are learning a little bit more about what part of stories make people move. And we can do this in an ethical, we can still do it in an ethical way. Like we can do it differently and it takes more time. Like on your journey, are there like nuts and bolts part of storytelling that still just will dignify um, story owners, but also can lead to this really great ROI, whatever the purpose of the story is? I don't think that the, some of the stories that have been told and that are being told don't always need to change. I think what actually needs to change in some of that is just the way we go about building the relationships with the with the protagonists of our story. Um, oftentimes, we kind of swoop in and, you know, it, it would be like someone visiting your town, pulling a story out of you and using that as a representation for you know, your entire state as if everybody were like you. That story may hold true and it might be a beautiful, great story that 
has a real impact. But I think where we have not always done the best job, but where we're learning to do a much better job is recognizing that, again, a story isn't a commodity. It's a tool for building relationship and to come in and kind of understand the complexity and nuance of the situation around you and to recognize that your story is you know, one story in a sea of a lot of stories that can be true. And your experience is tr- might be true for others, but also is not true for, again, we'll just use like everyone in your home state, for instance, or everyone of your particular background or ethnicity. And so I think a lot of the ways we tell stories have been true. They're generationally built to, you know, have an impact. They've been these formulas have been used for centuries and centuries, and they hold true. But I think it's more how we get those stories and how we pass them on um, that we're learning to do a better job with. Nuance has come up so often in ethical and trauma-informed storytelling, and I hope that we continue to hold space for so much nuance. I think you're right. It's not about let's scrap everything we've done and start from from beginning because you're right. Stories have been around forever. Stories are not new. We can still tell stories and tell them well. But how can we leave space for context? How can we leave space for nuance? And how can we maybe pass the mic to people that would maybe be better represented to tell that story? I love that. I love that. And lots of grace along the way as we are figuring that out. I've also lived abroad in a few places and have just, yeah, when I think back to pictures I've taken, pictures I've posted and and stories that I've told um, and the culture around volunteerism and and storytelling. It's, I find it especially poignant when we are telling um, stories of those that live in such different social and geographical contexts than us, how we need to just allow for so much time and space to do it well, to tell these, to tell these stories. I think too, you know, one thing, and this is probably just true of young people everywhere, maybe young idealistic people everywhere. But I think oftentimes one thing we don't understand is when we tell a story, we can, it's always our, within our right and power to tell a story of our own experience. Here's how I am experiencing this culture, or here's how I experienced something that happened to me at work today, or whatever that might look like. I think where the trouble lies sometimes is oftentimes we take ownership for a culture that isn't ours and say, here's what is happening, as opposed to here's how I'm experiencing what is happening around me. I don't understand these things or they're new to me or they feel wrong in some ways. You know, I think it's absolutely okay to say I'm experiencing something that culturally feels very wrong to me or inappropriate because this is not how I grew up. But that doesn't mean that we label it morally as this is good or bad. It's simply a recognition that and and that's something that I think as young people, we just don't understand the difference between our perception of the world versus making a, a value statement or a judgment statement. Um, and, and that's part of the nuance that I think we, as we get older, we can really model well for other folks as we learn it ourselves too, right? To say, hey, here's here's a story from my perspective of what I'm experiencing. And, and this is, you know, the encounter I had and, and such. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely. And this is what I love about what you just said. How you're experiencing something is your own story. And that is still true. Like that Mm -hmm. is still true. And that is whether you've moved to a new city through college or 
serving abroad, or even like being in a new relationship where you have are experiencing new things and new cultures and new just worldviews. And that's okay. And it does take so much thoughtfulness and practice to separate yourself from like, well, then that means that's that's wrong or true or not true. I love that idea of telling stories through your lens and through your perspective, but then kind of leaving it, leaving it at. Or again, just like, or do the work of bringing in the broader context or understanding, you know, the, the broader context, which takes so much time and so much work. But I love that you honor that like people who experience something new still have a story to tell and it's still really impactful for them. I I was talking with Angela Popowell over at 100 Cameras. And if you don't follow them, they are just like, I cannot say enough good things about their organization, but also the journey they've been on from kind of understanding how to tell great stories and how to empower the person on the other side of the camera in this case, because they're giving these cameras out to kids and teaching them how to interact with their own world and, and tell their own version of what they see. But she and I were talking a while back, and I remember her explaining to me kind of how the pendulum had swung for them. They had gotten so far on one side thinking that that was the right answer, and they were kind of coming back. And I I remember going through this same kind of pendulum swing of, should we as Westerners ever even go overseas? Is you know development work even ethical? you know, volunteerism. And and I still think we need to interrogate a lot of that and ask good, hard questions about these things. But I also realized that my worldview and my ability to have compassion and my understanding of our world happened because I had the privilege and the opportunity to go experience other cultures and live overseas. And I I think that has so deeply woven into the way that I can now show up in the world for better or for worse, maybe, but I don't want to be somebody who says that that shouldn't be happening anymore. I just think there's a lot more intentional ways that we can do that. And and that's where I come back to this idea of go send a 17 year old overseas for them to see something, but also teach them that they're experiencing the world through their own upbringing and their own lens. And, and they can say, you know, when I first got here, this was so weird to me as, you know, and then by the time I left, I understood why this happened or what, you know, and, and to see that transformation um, of them learning a culture and learning a practice and getting to know the people who experience that culture as their own. So I just think there's a lot more intentional ways that we can equip people, particularly, again, I, I really think this is true, maybe because I still have such a tender spot for the 20-something-year-old me who who just feels like she made so many mistakes because she didn't know better. And I, I want so bad for those idealistic 20-something-year-olds who are out going into the world today to to just feel a little more equipped um, so maybe they don't carry some of the regrets that I, I now do. <laughs> when I was in college, I did quite a number of, of- mission trips and cringy, cringy mission trips. And I was also very privileged to study in Uganda for a semester and had adults running that program that were so intentional about challenging those kinds of mindset and worldviews. And it absolutely changed my life and it absolutely changed my worldview. 
all these things that we're talking about, they really led us and they didn't teach us. They led us like all good teachers do. They led us through these really hard conversations that challenged my worldview on faith, that challenged my worldview on culture, religion, poverty. And I'm grateful that I had four months of living in Uganda and having adults. I was an adult. I mean, I was 19. I mean, I wasn't really, I I was an adult legally, but it's amazing (laughs) that like that experience, how, how young I was in, in, in retro, in retrospect and how uh, grateful I am that I had people that challenge, challenge these kinds of responses that come quite naturally the first time that you're, or the first few times that you're, that you're traveling abroad. And, and I also talk often about serving in the Peace Corps and it's been 15, 20 years since I served in the Peace Corps. And I still feel all kinds of guilt and regret on how I could have done things differently as a Peace Corps volunteer, but still know that I had that that time in Uganda that gave me a good foundation. And also, I do think that in Ghana, the the staff was mostly Ghanaian and also was with a lot of grace, able to challenge a lot of our kind of combat or our, our worldviews and, and, and supporting us to to serve better um, in the Peace Corps. And I think that I agree. I agree. There are so many times where I'm like, we got to pull these programs out. We just need to all stay in our lane. Um, as someone who is white, as someone who is privileged, as someone who is, you know, so many things, so many things of privilege, I don't think I would be able to teach trauma-informed storytelling if it weren't for those experiences, those huge learning curve experiences. And I think that bringing it back to storytellers, I mean, I joined the Peace Corps because of my love for storytelling. Really? I mean, I just was chasing a good story. I wanted to experience things and I wanted to tell my story and other people's story. And so I think that storytellers have that in them. I'm not surprised that you're a storyteller and I'm a storyteller and we have traveled quite a bit because we have that sense of of adventure. And I think with that comes this role and responsibility to tell stories with dignity. So I appreciate you bringing me back to my 20s <laughs> and, and those lessons there, but also you're getting me thinking about those role models who were so kind and gracious and slow. And again, didn't teach at me, but just kind of guided us through through really, really hard conversations. And so much of ethical storytelling is, it's not black and white. It is gray. It is like a little bit of intuition. It's a little bit of like feeling things out. It's a lot of hard, hard, uncomfortable conversations that we need to have. It is. And I think all of these things become easier when you don't have to unlearn certain things that you were taught. And again, that's so much of what I'm, I'm hopeful that as as new generations of students are coming up through high school and college and studying these things and going out into the world that we get to be better role models for them and they don't have to unlearn certain practices. They just go into it more naturally inclined to build relationships with folks and to ask for permission mm-hmm. and to be mindful and respectful of um, cultural practices and personal space and histories of trauma, right? And that it growing up trauma was something that was a big capital T and we didn't talk about. And the fact that now 
you know, we, we went through this trauma-informed course, we're all becoming so much more aware and mindful of what that looks like for the vast majority of people around us. And I think by breaking down those barriers, it's giving us a way to interact better, to be more mindful, to be more careful. And I just hope that trend kind of ripples out and continues as, as new generations come up, that they just feel a lot more at ease with, with the hard conversations, that that doesn't something become something they shy away from, but they're just more naturally inclined to, okay, let's, let's roll up our sleeves and do the work that it takes. Right. This episode was made possible by DonorBox. Let's be honest, social impact storytelling and fundraising is hard. DonorBox is in your corner to simplify fundraising for you and giving back for your donors. Transform your fundraising strategy effortlessly with DonorBox, the online fundraising platform that streamlines your process, elevates your donations, and ensures a user-friendly experience for your supporters. Create captivating donation forms, accept digital wallet payments, seamlessly track donations, and automate receipts. Joining is a breeze with no setup or monthly fees and no contracts required. Explore the world of simplified, seamless fundraising at DonorBox.org today. DonorBox, helping you help others. So let's talk about this trauma-informed course that we took together. So last year, we there's a group of us um, with Veronica Lafamina and Cody Hayes. And we, I think for all four of us, this was a pretty new concept. So I have a question for you. What would you say is the difference between trauma-informed storytelling and ethical storytelling, if there is a difference, now that we've kind of had time to like learn and reflect on that course we took together? That is such a good question. I'm not sure that I had thought about it until you just asked me, but where my mind went is that it's a little bit of a Venn diagram. I think on the ethical storytelling side, a lot of the research I've done has been focused on, say, a lot of practices all the way down to the fact that people have kind of maybe even codified certain sets of like, we do this, we don't do this sort of thing. And I think there's a there's so much good in all of that. It's just giving people a new toolkit toolkit and resource to kind of think through, you know, asking for permission, um, you know, allowing people to have a say of what gets signed off, what doesn't. And I also think when we talk ethical storytelling, a lot of that is rooted in, I'm going to say media culture in the sense that we're talking also about the production of stories, photos, videos, marketing material. When I think about the trauma-informed work that we went through, at least to me, and maybe this is my perception, so please tell me you know, if you had a different experience to this, but it was a little bit more of a mindset and a heart space of recognizing both the, the trauma in my own past that I might carry into something, but even more so being aware of the world around me and what they're dealing with, right? That that kind of old ad, adage about like, you never know what someone else is going through. I thought about that so much, both in terms of the people that we tend to ask stories from. This, this could feel like a given. I just did a training a little while ago. I co-taught a training on, on ethical storytelling to a group of international nonprofits that worked in the anti-trafficking space. This was a no-brainer when we talk about trauma. It's obvious that pretty much every client they have has trauma. 
But what we is a lot less obvious when we think about kind of maybe other types of organizations um, or when we even think about the people who are receiving that kind of information. You know, most of us get drawn to an organization because we have some sort of connection to it. And so recognizing that as you're fundraising today, as we're recording this, it's Giving Tuesday. I have had nine million emails in my inbox about asking for money. You know, and and they're trying to capture my attention and pull at my heartstrings. But in doing that, sometimes you can also stir up trauma that exists in your audience. Um, and I've gotten off track, but to answer your question, I think there is a, I, I think they are separate and yet the same. There's a really strong overlap there of carrying in a mindset of best practices for producing stories, collecting and producing stories, and carrying in that heart space of recognize tenderness and the past experiences that someone comes into this interaction with and, and how to kind of hold both of those well. I love it. Okay, so I'll tell you what my thoughts. Good, please. <laughs> change and they've evolved and will continue to change and evolve. So when I first finished our course and was starting to take that and put it into practice and teach it, people would ask me what was the difference between the two and I had a very specific answer ethical and it's so basic <laughs> <laughs> i love it I've, i love that you had this answer i'm like i should have called you why i didn't have the answer okay go ahead <laughs> of course i'm like curious what your journey's been said ethical storytelling is respecting and dignifying through storytelling where trauma informed storytelling is providing safety through storytelling that was like my my answer. So it's like safety and health and respect and dignity. Now, since then, I there is so much blur. And I think if I'm really honest, I think the reason why I try so hard to separate them is because I am more comfortable being an authority in trauma-informed storytelling than ethical storytelling. And I think it's because of exactly what you said, that when it comes to ethical storytelling, it is it is still like an us and them. Like it's us, the storytellers, and our responsibility to dignify and respect these people. And it just scares me like owning that because it is such a journey. Whereas I couldn't agree more when, it, when we would get together and talk about the point of our study group was to connect dots between trauma being trauma-informed and storytelling. And instead it turned into this therapy session. I mean, it totally brought up so much gunk for all of us. I think it's fair to say we spent our study group talking about our own traumas and our own experiences. It wasn't until much later that I was actually even able to connect those dots. And with that said, I agree when it comes to trauma-informed storytelling, it's not an us and them, it's this ecosystem. And we are have all experienced trauma. And, and I've talked about this in the first few episodes, but um, especially since the pandemic, and there's been a lot of study even before then on how Americans in the United States have experienced at least one traumatic event by the time they're 18. So there leaves space for, this is something that you've experienced and I've experienced and our readers have experienced. Let's just walk in this together and just do things in a way where we're holding space better and that we are allowing for safety and agency so I, I, I don't, I, I'm telling you my black and white clear because it felt very easy, but now really when I talk about trauma-informed storytelling, the two tenets that 
that float to the top is providing safety and agency, which is really similar and ethical storytelling too, though, especially when it comes to telling story of children or highly vulnerable populations, we're still trying to um, strive towards giving them agency and control over their story and their voice, and also to do so in a way that they feel safe. So I had an answer. I don't have an answer. It's, it's, um, it's ongoing, but I'm so grateful that I've, I've come to hold this as a journey and not a destination for both lanes and to know that and it is a Venn diagram. I used to say that ethical storytelling and trauma-informed storytelling were married, but they were different. But now I'm seeing that there is so much overlap. There really is a lot of overlap. But I guess to kind of go back to one thing, I do agree with you that in ethical storytelling, we do talk a little bit more practically on as a storyteller, you really have this role and this responsibility to um, to be re- more respect- respectful and to dignify. And like your own experiences are almost like null and void if you're not telling your own story, if you're telling somebody else's story. That's where I'm sitting right now on Giving Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love your answer. And I love the way you've kind of that they have, you know, been separate and and merged. And, you know, as you find your way forward, and like you, I think probably my perspective on these things will continue to change and evolve over time. I, I do think, though, you know, even as I listen to you, I feel like going through a program like what we went through, really starting to understand I'll say the tenets of trauma. I don't know if that's the correct way to phrase that, but maybe it needs to just be part and parcel of most ethical storytellers' training and learnings. Because I do think that having that base understanding of it is very likely, if you were interested in ethical storytelling, my guess is that you are in some sort of space where you're collecting stories on behalf of somebody else and telling them to a different audience. And And understanding the role that trauma plays in that, I think is really imperative as part of that sense of how do we dignify, again, part of my evolution in this space was thinking that ethical storytelling only existed in terms of dignifying the person whose story I was collecting. I I think I've started to really see it as an ecosystem now that they are part of a larger community, they are part of a family subset, they are, but also, you know, the organization that is serving them needs to be dignified in that. The very folks who work at that place, as much as the people who are receiving those stories and on the other side of being asked to donate or volunteer or get involved in some way. And I I think there's a dignity that needs to be upheld kind of in all levels of that. And so I've stopped seeing it kind of to your point. It's such an easy us and them. And I my mindset has shifted a little bit more to the ecosystem of all the players that are involved in this experience. And if I think about it that way, then being mindful of that space where trauma exists in this ecosystem is also a really important tool and lens to kind of understand how to interact with everyone. Right, right. I think this is what this is bringing up for me. Something that's so interesting about trauma is it's not an event, it is so personal. It is your individual response to an event. 
which I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but that's why trauma-informed storytelling feels so personal, feels so one-on-one. Although the one-on-one is so many dots because it's every single audience member that is that is reading. But I love that I've never really thought before about that the story owner's family, community. I mean, a little bit when it comes to protecting privacy, but but bigger picture. And, and again, I don't know where trauma-informed starts and then where ethical storytelling comes in, but it 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 almost seems to have this bigger effect where it's when you when you tell a story from an ethical storytelling perspective, you it, you are touching so many people, and you have an opportunity to dignify and be respectful of so many people, or you may um, unintentionally cause harm to so many people, not just the person that you are sitting down interviewing in this like container of time. I don't even know if it's worthwhile to have like specific definitions only maybe because I've been asked them and I assure you that you will be asked at some point because we're talking more and more about trauma-informed storytelling and so people do it's so funny how we want to have black and white answers like okay if you're going to be talking about ethical storytelling we have to talk about trauma-informed storytelling Mm -hmm. I think that's fair and vice versa I cannot talk about trauma-informed storytelling without touching on what it needs to be an anti-oppressive storyteller Well, and so maybe even to that point, at a certain point, maybe we won't be talking about them separately. You know, I mean, maybe because these are still relatively new that we're having to explain what it means. I mean, my hope maybe is someday that it's just storytelling. No one needs to no one needs to even say ethical or trauma informed. We just learned how to do it better where these things are kind of baked into our understanding of these practices. So you heard it here, the future of trauma-informed and ethical storytelling is we just don't even have to like, we don't have to like plot out and figure out the difference between the two. Really, truly, I, I, I feel that. Like I, that kind of like gives me goosebumps that it just becomes part of our practice. But I think, I think it's possible. Maybe call me overly optimistic, but I think the work that you're doing here by having a podcast, I think... The work that so many folks are doing, not just to educate and help one-on-one with organizations or other storytellers, but to really raise the awareness for everyone and and just help them understand, hey, there are better ways that we can do the things that that we do. And, you know, I guess in that, I do hope that someday we don't have to specify that this is a trauma-informed practice. It just is inherently a trauma-informed practice. Right, right. One reason why I have been so drawn to you as a voice in this sector and as far as ethical storytelling is that you bring so much kindness, grace, and empathy when we talk about these really, really difficult things. And we can't explore ethical storytelling without having moments of regret. You know, it's just kind of like forward motion and we're going to make mistakes along the way. And I'd love for you to speak to that. Why have you chosen that? And why is it so important that we hold kindness, grace, and empathy for ourselves and for others as we're striving to be trauma-informed and ethical storytellers? I don't know where the quote comes from. I think it might be from Brene Brown, but please correct me if you know better, but someone very wise 
talks about, I'm sure it's got to be Brene Brown now as I say this, that shame never accomplishes anything. And the first time I heard that, I realized that I had felt so much shame over some of the things that I had done. And and here's a really interesting, you know, as we tie this back into ethical, excuse me, into um, trauma-informed storytelling, trauma brings shame too for so many of us, right? And so we carry in shame into these practices. And I just remember realizing one time that that was not a place to move forward from. Um, you know, I mean, it was like dragging balls and chains with me. And that if I really wanted to to learn how to do a better job, the first thing I had to learn to practice was grace for myself. And that I could acknowledge, hey, I didn't do certain things right in the past. I can go back and I can apologize and I can make amends to the best of I, I don't think just kind of writing things off that we've done in the past is necessarily the right course of action. If you have the opportunity to make amends, or to issue a sincere apology, and that's an appropriate thing to do in any given time, go for it. Please do that, because I think that's a beautiful way to restore a relationship and to move forward. And again, to, to be that role model of here's what it looks like to recognize, hey, I didn't engage in the best practices, and I'm sorry for that, and I recognize this could have caused hurt or harm, and I'm learning to do better. But beyond that, also, I think we just can't live in that space. I don't think that that really is teaching us how to move forward better. And I really, I really appreciate that you see me as someone who practices kindness and grace. I don't always. I was actually sitting with a team. We were in Uganda and I don't know if I was just in a bad mood or what was happening, but I was not coming from a really great headspace as we were talking about some communications best practices. And someone in the group just reframed a sentence for me. And I can't even remember what she said or how she said it, but it caught me in that moment. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have gotten right back to that. Like, and don't do this and make sure you don't do this. And the finger was wagging. And that is for sure not how anybody goes into a relationship feeling great about themselves, right? If our goal is to encourage people to build relationships and to engage in new cultures with joy and open curiosity and and respect, no one does that when they've been scolded into, right? That's the right. first place we do is I shouldn't ask any questions. I shouldn't take any pictures. I shouldn't offend, like, what if I offend somebody and do it wrong? And that is the last thing I ever want to cause for someone else to feel. I would much rather say, like, here's some great ways to ask better questions, to be more mindful of how this action might be taken and, and to go out and have fun. And if you mess up, great, we all mess up. Like, just apologize and move on with your life. But just think of how much better your experience is going to be and how many new friends you're going to make over the course of that. And I I just, I want the work that I do. I, I want people to not feel fearful that they're going to get it wrong and shamed when they do, but rather to say, great, there's going to be times that you're going to think, gosh, why did I do that? And why didn't I ask this? And someone should have signed that paper and I shouldn't have phrased it that way and whatever. This is human life. But I think that if you come into it with a place of, I just want to get to know people and and honor them and and help them feel better after we've talked than they did before, you know, I, I can't think that, I think the world will just be a better place. <laughs> We are first and foremost humans. Yeah. We are. And I just think it's too easy in today's culture, not to get into any of this, but 
I, I do think with kind of today's cancel culture and stuff, people live on this edge of I'm going to say the wrong thing or it's going to be construed the wrong way. And I just want to, again, th- there's a time and a place for calling people out, but I I rather call people in than call them out. And I just think that when we call people in, we give them so much more freedom, again, to build real authentic relationships and for the stories that come to be stories that are born out of that experience. That is so beautifully said. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about how people might be able to work with you, how they can learn or access your ethical storytelling research database? Yeah. So I, being the nerd that I am, have been hoarding all the information I can find unintentionally about ethical storytelling. You know, once I got into this, I just couldn't stop. And so I've got a resource. I've probably got a little over 100 pieces of everything from websites to PDFs and stuff. And it's just a really great resource. It can be a little overwhelming, um, but it's a public database and it's hosted in Notion, but I believe anyone can access it. You can add your own materials. You can put notes in there. You can sort things. You can filter. So instead of being overwhelmed, I always recommend like pop in there and find one article to read. You know, it might just be something to to work on or a new way to think about things. And if you've got your own stash of ethical storytelling or trauma-informed storytelling resources, please like, you know, spread the love, add them to the database. In terms of, you know, finding me online, I'm at onpurposeproject.com or christykern.com. They go to the same URL with the magic of the internet. But that's probably the easiest way. I really right now I'm up for collaborations of any sort. I always tell folks I've kind of moved into a space of like, if you've got a really amazing project and you want to brainstorm it with me, great. Send me an email. I'd love to hear about it and help out however I can. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I have loved this conversation and I so deeply appreciate this. Yeah. This conversation and you being in the space with me today. So thank you. Thank you for having me. You were the person who really introduced me to the idea of trauma-informed marketing. And it's something that I have just, I'm so grateful to you for that because it was not a lens of which I had, you know, it's, I'm so used to saying tool in my toolbox, but I actually feel like it's more of a lens and a practice of which we go into these experiences. And I'm just so grateful that you kind of opened the door to this space for me because it was not there previously. But you also kind of to this very practice when we went through the study group created a really safe space for us to unpack our own trauma before we even talked about how to bring this into our own marketing businesses and practices. And so I'm so grateful. I've always been so grateful for you that you held that space for us. But I am also just so proud of you and excited for you that you're holding this space for so many others. And again, just opening so many minds and, you know, practices up to how we can do a better job. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of When Bearing Witness. This podcast was produced by our friends at Rustic Roots. They are video storytellers passionate about sharing the impact of nonprofits. From story ideation to beautiful and powerful videos on screen, they've got you covered. Get in touch over at rusticroots.co. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do subscribe and leave a rating and review. And remember, 
Your role as a storyteller is making the world a healthier, safer, cleaner, and happier place. Thank you for bearing witness. Until next time.